0: convocation marks, as I said a moment ago, the beginning of the new academic semester. And so twice a year at the beginning of the semesters and twice a year at the end of the semesters in graduation, we get to gather and, as my kids used to say, play dress up. Get to wear our gowns, as my children used to call them, and get to uh, wear our funny hats. And some of us wear our medallions and together get to play dress up. But of course, we're not playing at anything. We are here giving ourselves to this great noble work. Convocation marks for us not just the beginning of new academic semesters, but oftentimes it's also the occasion to set forth new institutional initiatives, to state new institutional priorities, to recognize institutional achievements, to celebrate individuals who've been elected to our faculty and their signing of our confessional statement. This morning, I want to speak to you indeed about a new institutional initiative. The title of the sermon today is Midwestern Seminary's Missions Moonshot. Midwestern Seminary's Missions Moonshot. I want to draw your attention this morning to the Gospel of John, chapter 10. We'll be looking in a few moments specifically at verse 16, set within the broader discourse by our Lord of the Good Shepherd. John chapter 10, verse 16. And we're thinking together this morning again about Midwestern Seminary's Missions Moonshot. I've spent much time praying over this and reflecting with our leadership here in recent months, particularly in recent weeks. And so I pray that you will give heed to the entirety of this presentation start to finish and buy in, not just with the nod of the head, but with a resonation of the heart, what I believe God is calling us to do to reprioritize the nations at this institution a missions moonshot. The year 2023 marks the 60th anniversary of the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. An event, of course, that shocked the world, and as one commentator reflected, it stripped away the nation's innocence. It also froze in time a young president, just 46 years old, with a beautiful young family, who radiated confidence and charisma. Kennedy, of course, was an accomplished public speaker, delivering memorable moving lines at his inauguration, his address to the nations on civil rights, and for our purposes this morning, his moonshot address. Just one year, just over one year before his assassination, on September 12th, 1962, President Kennedy delivered his moonshot speech in a football stadium at Rice University. He aimed to rally the American people to support the Apollo space program and to point all federal agencies to one urgent goal: to put a man on the moon and to return him safely back to Earth by the end of the 1960s, the context in which President Kennedy spoke was one of national unease, even urgency. The Soviets were winning the space race on October 4, 1957. they had launched Sputnik, the first artificial satellite, into orbit, beating the Americans. And again, on April 12th, 1961, the Soviets launched the first man into space, cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin, beating the Americans again. But lagging behind in the space race didn't just wound our national pride, it it stoked national fear. We fear that these were representative of a larger, graver gap on strategic technologies essential for national defense. So all of this and more made President Kennedy's speech that day at Rice land like the Manhattan Project two decades earlier, or like the COVID vaccine race against time six decades later. A race against time. In his speech, Kennedy declared, We shall send to the moon, 240,000 miles away, a giant rocket, more than 300 feet tall, on an untried mission to an unknown celestial body, and then return it safely to the earth. But why say the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why 35 years ago fly the Atlantic? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, because they are hard because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept when we're unwilling to postpone and therefore as we set sail we ask god's blessing on the most hazardous and dangerous and greatest adventure that man has ever known the speech rallied the nation as you know it dramatically expanded federal funding for nasa and it mobilized the entire the entire federal government to put a man on the moon and return him safely by the end of the decade. And of course, you know the history, though Kennedy would not live to see it. That's exactly what happened on July eleventh, July twentieth, nineteen sixty nine. Neil Armstrong descended the ladder of the Apollo eleven lunar module and became the first man to walk on the moon, declaring it as one small step for man and one giant leap for mankind. And he and his crew safely returned to earth just a few days later. That effort, that daunting effort to mobilize the American people and the federal government behind such a a daunting goal with improbable odds, and the goal we achieved has fixed the concept of moonshot in our national imagination. And the phrase moonshot has been incorporated into our national vocabulary. It's shorthand for a goal, a goal that is so big and and so daunting and so ambitious, so large, that requires special collective effort, sacrifice, and determination. In our context, we would think of it as a goal so big and so large that it is unachievable, left to our own energies and devices and resources, unachievable without God's favor, God's blessing, and the full buy-in. Of God's people. So this morning, I want to say on the front end of our time together, what is our missions moonshot? I want to stay on the front end institutionally. We are aiming to produce 100 missionaries per year in the years ahead. I did not say, Amen, Amen. Joe likes that. I did not say, Call 100 missionaries a year. God calls. I did not say even send 100 missionaries a year. We are not a sending agency. I didn't even say graduate 100 missionaries a year, though surely the vast majority of those will be graduates, though some may go overseas while still in their studies. By missionary, we mean individuals who are committed to overseas service to unreached or underreached people groups for at least a minimum commitment of two years. So for instance, our goal of 100 would not include short-term missionary trips, nor even summer service like through our fusion programs. But to see God do here in the years ahead a deepening and expanding of a great commission work so that annually we get to see and celebrate 100 or more students slash graduates going out to the nation's. And I don't mean this just in some like generic, general sense where we kind of sort of think we're roughly producing that many. I mean in a countable, defined, identifiable group of men and women who annually are being called to the nations. So let's put this in context. What does this mean for us? First and foremost, the International Mission Board, not our only but certainly our primary missionary partner, They need 400 new missionaries every year to go overseas. Due to natural attrition and people retiring and rotating off the field for other ministry and missionary opportunities, they need 400 new missionaries every year, the IMB, And currently, they have more resources than they have men or women stepping up, having been prepared to go fill those slots. Our best assessment here internally is that over the years, we are likely producing dozens, several dozens of those that we can clearly identify. So for us, this would, this would look like a doubling, if not a tripling, of, of those we can identify and count and know that we are sending forth to the nations with the IMB or with other similar evangelical partners. We also draw a line from this goal back to our strategic priorities that we unveiled this past fall, about the next five years. And strategic priority number two, as many of you recall, was student success. And this is what we stated. Midwestern Seminary and Spurgeon College's greatest urgency is to produce graduates in sufficient numbers and of sufficient quality to meet the needs of Southern Baptist churches. We thus prioritize a robust enrollment because of the growing needs of our churches and our mission boards. The urgency of the Great Commission and of our commitment to train God called men and women for the church and for the kingdom. Yet, quality of graduates equals quantity of graduates in importance. Therefore, we seek to train the whole person, preparing students for a lifetime of faithful gospel service. So, I want to frame our thoughts this morning a bit more deeply from verse 16 of chapter 10, and then, and then think about what this means for us together institutionally. Those in the room today, And those, of course, far beyond the room who are identified with this institution as students and as servants. John chapter 10, we find ourselves in this great discourse where Jesus speaks of himself as the good shepherd. One of seven I am statements our Lord gives. Chapter 6, I am the bread of life. Chapter 10 here, I am the, the good shepherd and the door of the sheep. Chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Chapter 12, I am the light of the world. Chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, the life. And chapter 15, I am the true vine. And every time our Lord makes one of these I am statements, his Jewish hearers know exactly what he's claiming. It's a statement of his own deity, claiming to be equal with the Father. That I am statement hearkens their mind back to Exodus chapter 3, the way Yahweh revealed himself to Moses through that burning bush. Tell Pharaoh that I am has sent you. And so every time Jesus speaks this way, the Jewish crowd's eyes light up, cha-ching in their mind. They know exactly what Jesus is claiming. Here, beginning in verse 1, all the way down through verse 39, is this extended metaphor, excuse me, this extended Good Shepherd metaphor, a sustained metaphor that runs throughout this passage. And we see here, if we were to spend time in multiple sermons, we would see Jesus presenting himself as a a saving shepherd in verses 7 through 9 and as a satisfying shepherd in verse 10 and as a sacrificial shepherd in verses 11 through 13 and as a seeking shepherd in verses 14 through 16 and as a sovereign shepherd in 17 through 21 and as a secure shepherd in verses 22 through 30. But our interest this morning in particular is of verse 16 and the couple of preceding verses, verses 14 and 15. So read them with me in verse 14. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Verse 16 again. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with me, one shepherd. So within this majestic discourse on the good shepherd, is what John Piper has referred to as the greatest missionary verse in all the Bible, verse 16. A verse that God used in the lives of individuals like David Brainerd and and William Carey and David Livingston to capture their imagination for the nations, to capture their hearts for distant places. Now, I want to just really hover over verse 16 for a few minutes here and just look at it from several different aspects, several different angles, and, and pull from it several different reflections. And then, and then we'll move from the verse back to the institution to talk about why I believe the season is right now for us to step forward and to step up. Notice verse 16. Notice Jesus' words here. First of all, I, I love the, the certainty we see in verse 16. Jesus says, I have other sheep. Jesus does not say here, I want other sheep or I desire other sheep. He says, I have other sheep. Notice the certainty that runs through this verse, in fact. In fact, go back to verse 14. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own. My own know me, a certainty of relationship. Just so much so as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I will lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 16, I have other sheep. They're not of this fold. Then notice again the certainty, I must bring them also. Notice ongoing in verse 16, they will hear my voice. They will become one flock with one Shepherd, brothers and sisters, there is a promise in this verse—a promise that should heighten our expectation and our expectancy—that Christ has a flock that He is building, that He is growing for two thousand years. And some of those yes are in and around this campus, and then around the city, and then around the state, and in around this region, and in around this nation. But many of those sheep are in altogether distant places. Of course, our mind goes in this passage immediately to the great contrast here with the Pharisees, right, the Jewish people. And clearly Jesus here is saying, most pointedly, that that, that I have sheep that are beyond the nation of Israel. There will be an ingathering of a flock far beyond the sons and daughters of Abraham, physically speaking. There will be many more who will come into my flock, many more who will come to the good shepherd, and they will be, from distant, distant places. There's a certainty to this calling that Jesus gives us towards the Great Commission, but there's also a diversity to it, and I love it here. Again, verse 16, I have other sheep. No doubt that registers as well with his Jewish hearers. Perhaps they they find it offensive. Perhaps they find it surprising. Perhaps they find it impossible These Jewish leaders were the original ethnocentrists. Everything went back to them and their beliefs and their customs and their heritage and their culture, et cetera, et cetera. There is a a shocking reality to this verse, as you reflect on that Jesus is intentionally raising their eyes, raising their gaze to see beyond themselves, beyond their own people, beyond their, their own house. I have other sheep. These other sheep are not currently of this fold. They're distant. They're scattered. Verse 16, I must bring them. I must find them. I must get them. And they will hear my voice. And they will become one flock with one shepherd. These are Jesus' sheep. Jesus has died for these sheep. He's purchased these sheep and he's saying to his disciples and he's saying to us through this verse that we are on mission with him to go and to find and to incorporate these sheep into his flock for they, he has set his love on them. A few years ago, I was uh, invited to be a part of a a dinner, my wife and I, with a few other, few other seminary presidents and, and their spouses. And, um, and we were, it was in the Dallas area, Dallas, Texas. And there was a little dinner gathering, and uh, it, it was at this, like, really nice restaurant. And we were told that some third-party group or individual, whomever, had, had sponsored this dinner. They wanted to, like, like bless these seminary presidents to come to their spouses to a really nice meal. And so we go to this restaurant. It's, like, a really nice restaurant. We go in the restaurant, and, uh, and, uh, and, and the... Um, the, it was in the, the context of ETS Week. And we go to this restaurant, and uh, we, we go to and They say, well, there, there's a private room down there. So you go to this private room. This private room is, like, really nice, okay? And you go in this private room, and we're sitting there, and it's just a few of us there. And, uh, and you're thinking, my goodness, this must cost, like, a zillion dollars that someone's paying for Glad it's not me. And it's this private room inside this very high-end restaurant. And it's like, and, and the first thing we're told is, we had, uh, you know, uh, 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 someone, uh, I don't know who, some, someone wanted to sponsor this meal just to bless seminary presidents and their wives, Okay. So we sit down, and, uh, and then we notice there are a number of empty chairs. Well, evidently, a couple of those, like, like a third of those who were going to be attending this meal, they had travel complications that meant they, they were not able to be there. And so there was like a third who were supposed to be there were not there. And so then the host told us, said, and, and to, make, to make matters more interesting, not only was, has this meal been sponsored by someone else, this, this room came with a, a minimum purchase in this room. And, of course, you get similar presents. We're not drinkers. And so normally that's where, like, the, the, the tab gets run up right, so you're not going to meet the minimum expense through alcohol consumption. And, so, and so, so they're saying to us, say, so we're in this nice room, and this meal has already been pe- prepaid for by the sponsor who wanted to bless, and, and we have to meet this food minimum. And, oh, by the way, a third of the people who are going to help us inch up towards the food minimum is not here. In other words, saying, prepare to eat. <laughs> and boy, eat, we did. And uh, I don't know if it was a blessing or a cursing, but like wave after wave after wave of food kept coming at us, like these appetizers, seafood towers. And then the entree's coming, and the side's coming, and the dessert pile. And like my wife and I were there like, we're like we don't even like want to eat this much. And we're just kind of bot- dodging the food and, and, and trying to eat a little bit so we you know, don't appear un- lacking gratitude. But, but they kept saying, this has been paid for. This has been paid for. And the, and the, and the, and the sense was, it's been paid for, so, so you had to consume it. It's been bought. I think of that when I think of this verse. That Jesus has sheep he's paid for. Jesus has sheep he's bought. And we get to go, we who are on mission with him, we get to go and be about the business of finding and bringing into the flock through the preaching of the gospel and the strategic missionary work those sheep that Jesus has paid for. I love the commitment here. Jesus says, I must also bring. I have other ones. I must bring with me. There are others who must come in. I am completing this group. There are others who must come. And then notice verse 16. They will hear my voice. And they will become one flock with one shepherd. What is Jesus referring to? I believe He's referring to the call of the Spirit, the work of the Spirit in the hearts of sinners through the preaching of the Word and the preaching of the Gospel in places like Romans 1, as I read, and Romans 10, as we've read before. These passages speak of the preaching of the Word and the speaking of the Gospel and the work of the Spirit so as the Word of Christ lands in their hearts and awakens them to Christ and to the Gospel, they hear that voice. On occasion, I'll be in the gymnasium and looking for my sons, and there might be 20 or 30 boys bouncing balls in the gym. But if I raise my voice and yell, boys, two heads always turn, even if none others do. My boys know my voice. When they hear it, they turn their heads. Jesus saying, my sheep will recognize my voice And we go and we preach the gospel. And we go and we minister the gospel. And as we do, his sheep hear, his sheep respond, his sheep come into the flock. And so we look at verse 16, and it ought to motivate us with tremendous ambition for the nations, but it also ought to embolden us with confidence for our work. You see? Now is the time for us in this place to raise our eyes to the nations, and hold ourselves to a higher standard. Consider with me the alignment of providential points in this season, in this place, on this campus right now. Clearly there's a growing burden for the nation as God has been doing here in recent years. And clearly we're seeing that here as increasingly by the day we're talking more and more and planning more and more and seeking to go more and more. It's the right time on this campus I believe it's the right global moment. Think about where our world is, lostness and the pervasiveness of it. Increased secularity around the world and people living empty, desperate lives. Militant Islam, war, deprivation, dislocation, depression, desperation. The global emotional moment is one of obvious need. Perhaps we can even say one of stirring. Perhaps we can even say one of kindling by our Lord. It's the right time on this campus. It's the right global moment. I believe it's also the right denominational moment. As a people, Southern Baptists, we find ourselves these days too often too shallow, too insular, too distracted, too petty. And what to God that... Amongst our convention of churches and through our convention of churches, He would would deepen our call to the nations in such a way that would eclipse pettiness and things that would hold us back. That we be a people together of gospel boldness. And as one of six Southern Baptist seminaries, we have a responsibility to, in our own way, provide service and leadership in this regard. May we be a people who are looking to the nations. And as we do, we are saying to others, look with me go with me, look with us, go with us. It's the right denominational moment. On this place, we have the right resources as well. I mentioned in October at our trustee meeting, I'm announcing it more publicly here later today and tomorrow, the fact that God has given us in recent months and in a dramatic way in recent years, a very generous partner for fusion programs Mm -hmm. and in such a way that they in recent months elected to to increase that commitment. And God has put in their heart the desire to do that and given them the resources to do that. And so we announced in October, and again reissuing the call publicly, that a $2.5 million donation and pledge has been made in the honor of one of Southern Baptist's finest laymen by the name of Wayne Lee. A gift towards our Fusion undergraduate and master's programs here to expand our work for the nations. So we have the right moment on our campus. The right global moment, the right denominational moment, the right resources, the right vision, because to be for the church is to be for the nations, because that's what missionaries do. They go overseas winning people to Christ, baptizing them into local churches, establishing churches, healthy churches that will remain. That is what the missionary work is. We have the right personnel. God has called here in recent years, individuals increasingly with hearts to the nation, most especially in. Over the past year, Joe and Christy Allen to serve us in this way, and we're delighted by the team God has given us here. Even beyond them, faculty members like Drs. Duesing and DeRoshi and Hadaway and Eric Odegaard and so many others here who have hearts for the nation. God has given us the right personnel to expand this vision. God has given us the right programs. Hear me out. Unlike ever before, we have programs, academic programs for the nations, language programs where we train individuals in Spanish and Korean and Mandarin and Romanian and and, and other languages. We have academic programs through our global campus, and online training, certificate programs. Of course, our Fusion, a Fusion Master's program. We have the infrastructure in place to invest in a new generation of students who will become the next generation of missionaries, you see. There is no academic, programmatic impediment to meeting these goals. We've already alluded to this, but we also have the right partner. The International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention, right now God has blessed them with more resources than they have people going, and they are looking to us to help meet this need. We're grateful to God with our partnership with them. Of course, we're always grateful for other evangelical organizations that that, that seek our graduates and our students. We rejoice with them as well. But I can speak more concretely about the work of the IMB and more enthusiastically about the work of the IMB because I know their leadership and their resources and their commitments and convictions and what they're doing. And I see them overseas once or twice a year. And so we have the right partner. Now, listen to me next. This is a staggering thing. We also have the right enrollment. Do you realize we have students either studying in or from, right now, 63 countries around the world? Right now, students either studying from or in 63 countries around the world. Last time I checked, there were, as I recall, 193 registered nations in the United Nations. So that means that we have roughly students either from or in roughly one-third of all the nations recognized by the UN on the globe. Folks, it's really easy to think about Kansas City and the Chiefs and barbecue and all these local things we do and we enjoy, but God has made here a global institution. And we are being insufficiently ambitious if we don't see that and realize that and, and seek to use those tentacles that run around the globe to see the gospel race through them. Hear these countries Argentina, Australia, Austria, Bahamas, Belarus, Bolivia, Bosnia and Herzegovina, Brazil, Canada, Chile, China, Colombia, Costa Rica, Cote d'Ivoire, Cuba, Dominican Republic, Ecuador, Ethiopia, Georgia, Greece, Guatemala. Guyana, Honduras, Hong Kong, India, Indonesia, Ireland, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Malawi, Malaysia, Mexico, Mongolia, Myanmar, Nepal, New Zealand, Nicaragua, Nigeria, Pakistan, Panama, Paraguay, Peru, Philippines, Romania, Russia, Senegal, Singapore, South Georgia, South Sandwich Islands, South Korea, South Sudan, Spain, Switzerland, Taiwan, Thailand, Turkey, Ukraine, United Kingdom, Uruguay, Vietnam, Zimbabwe right now, students, from or in those nations. What I'm saying to you today, brothers and sisters, is God has given us here a reach far beyond any of us dreamt 10 years ago or perhaps even two years ago. And perhaps a reach far beyond many of us realize even this morning. And those tentacles are one that we need to maximize for the gospel. And I say to you studying here today in the room or watching us via live stream or wherever you are, seminary preparation, one upside to it is it, it is this opportunity for this great exposure to the nations where you're in class with people from the nations, whether online or on campus, where you're interacting with people from the nations. And so it does tend to be this great intersection with other people, other cultures, other nationalities, other places, you see? And we miss a tremendous opportunity if we don't realize that and seize it. My wife and I went to seminary uh, now just over 20 years ago for our MDiv degree. We were, we were from Mobile, Alabama, and, uh, and we were, God called me, uh, we became believers in, in the mid 90s, our freshman year in college, and uh, God called me to ministry a couple years later, and I served on staff at a church there in Mobile for a couple years. And then, and then the year's 2001, and we're really zeroing in on seminary. Where are we going to go? And, uh, and and so, again, this is like a zillion years ago, technologically speaking. I mean, they're, they're, you know, cell phones exist, but they're, there's these like bricks you wear on your waist. Uh, you know, uh, the Internet exists, but you just don't use it like now. I mean, you, you, know, you, you poke around on it. It wasn't an essential part of life like now. And so moving to seminary, we planned to go to move to Southern Sumerian Louisville in the fall. And so we, we needed to line up jobs and find a place to live and do the sorts of things one needs to do to move. And uh, so, so we decided that, that I would fly up to Louisville, like in, I think it was May, as I recall, and kind of finalize the employment we, would, we had nearly lined up and, and, and find a, an apartment for us to live in. And we, we just couldn't afford for both of us to fly up there, so it was kind of okay. Like, oh, okay, dear, you go, so I'll go do it. So I, I crashed at a friend's house in Louisville for a couple of days and, barred and had a loaner car to drive around on, and, uh, and, I, and I found us an apartment. My wife had given me, given me clear instructions, you know, please measure the cabinets and how much cabinet space we have, and measure the, the pantry and so we know what, you know, what we're, I'm working with here. So I found a little apartment uh, in the Linden area of Louisville, about 15 minutes from campus, Cantor Chase Apartments, and a quaint little part of town. Well, anyway, we, we secured the apartment, and a couple months later, we, we move up and uh, we're unloading our stuff on the second floor apartment. And, uh, and we're there, and, uh, and I, I rustled a couple of friends who were at seminary I knew to come help us unload, and we're unloading things. And we're unloading things on the second floor of our apart, second floor apartment, uh, I kept bumping into on the first floor, uh, the stairs between the two, down by the first floor, a young man, like he was probably mid 20s, maybe early 30s, maybe mid 30s, and he appeared to be from India. And I bumped into him a time or two. Hi, how are you? Hi, how are you? And um, so anyway, I just kind of made a mental note. It sounds like our, the gentleman living under us is, is an immigrant from India. Well, anyway, we're there. And, uh, you know, as the days go by and, and we're getting settled, and the evenings my wife is cooking, you know, chicken, uh, chicken enchiladas or whatever. And, and we smell curry wafting upstairs, you know, you know, getting to know our neighbor. We bump into him a couple of times in the, in the, uh, in the stairwell and talk to him a little bit and, and learned his name was Anant. And gathered Anant was from India. And so one day my wife and I said, hey, hey now that we're settled, we ought to invite India, uh, invite Anant up to dinner, and, and maybe we can share the gospel with him. I said, great. So my wife prepared a, little, uh, prepared a meal, and I kind of said, Not can you come up to dinner? We'd love to get to know you a little bit. So there, there we are, sitting around a little, little little table in this little apartment, and my wife has some, some food prepared, and I'm there, and my wife is there, and Anant is there. And, and he spoke English, but uh, it, it wasn't as... as uh, as clear as, as one maybe would, would want to follow the conversation carefully. But uh, we're there, and we uh, begin talking, and I begin talking about our, our call and where we're from and, and what we're doing in Louisville. And so I use that as a way to share the gospel, to transition from, like, why did we move to Louisville? Because we became believers in Christ, and we're here. And so I'm, like, midway through this gospel presentation, and Anant says, uh, Jason, I, Christian, I, Calvinist, I student at Southern Seminary. (laughs) And in that moment, it was one of these golden moments in life where you realize, boom, God is a big God. The gospel is a global gospel. The gospel had reached him in India and called him to America to prepare, to go back to where he was going to go to serve the cause of Christ. That is what seminary is like. One small but important upside. You're thrown into a cauldron with a lot of other people. And it should broaden, not just our cultural awarenesses, but broaden our international desires for the gospel. And as I reflect and look at what God has given us here in the full roll-up, I think, brothers and sisters, we are missing the boat if we don't set ourselves to higher standards on the Great Commission front. So what is our moonshot? is to institutionally to produce 100 identifiable missionaries per year. To produce. Not call, not send, but to produce. To identify them in our courses of study, to shape them and prepare them, and to help connect them with overseas missionary opportunities. And as we do, we will go forth, and I believe we will go forth together and achieve this goal. And as we do, I believe we will look back one day, And see, in greater ways, God has used institution for the nations and for the glory of his Son, Jesus Christ. Amen?